want you to consider, we sang it earlier, so when we sing it, or when we pray it, what do we mean? When we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, what are we praying for? Now, I think we're always saying, hey, let the king come. Let Jesus make his will sovereign on earth. Let it correspond to his moral will. We know God's in charge right now, but we want him to morally set right and wrong, which sounds wonderful. We say, Lord, save me from my enemies. But we must remember when Jesus came first, he came meek and mild. He came humble to give his life as a ransom for many, to be a servant. But when Jesus comes again, he will be a conquering hero. He will be a warrior and a general. As Revelation 14, verse 6 through 7 says, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of the water. And so if God comes in judgment, what does that mean for evil rulers? You know, the, those, those countries and places where Christians are lined up and told, renounce Jesus or we will cut off your heads in front of your children, which is real. Well, what is going to happen to wicked people who persecute Christians? What happens to those who reject Jesus and say, I don't need you, Jesus. I'm good enough as I am. Isn't it judgment for their sin? See, we need to learn, and I think this psalm and a number of psalms teach us to rejoice at God's judgment because he is doing something that is morally right. And we might push back a little bit, but because we know we deserve the same thing, but we will see for God to rescue us means God will punish the oppressors who are hurting Christians. Now, this is Psalm 35. If you haven't already opened your Bible to Psalm 35, we're, we're talking about this idea, and I've titled this sermon, When Loving Your Enemy Seems to Fail. What do you do when loving your enemy seems to fail? When, when you've tried, it doesn't seem to work. Now, Psalm 34, if you recall two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 34, three weeks ago, I'm sorry, Psalm 34, which was taste and see that the Lord is good. And one of the key lines in that passage was this call for God to save us. Psalm 35 then is looking at God saving when there is a trial and difficulty. It's saying, what do we do when God when God needs to save us from our enemies. What do we do? Sorry, a little static here. Trying to figure it out. There we go. Okay. What do we do when someone is hurting us? Psalm 35 lays this out. Psalm 36 will actually answer that question as God rescues him and stops those who are hurting him. The Bible teaches all over. We're supposed to love our enemies. But again, here's the thing I want to try and address. If you're following notes, you can try and answer this. When you have loved and lost, how can we have hope? When we've tried to, and then that person who has hurt you, who continues to hurt you, 
when you have that neighbor who doesn't like your Christianity, when you have that family member who rejects you and you try and love them and they do not, when you have that boss who you work for so hard and he mocks you or she mocks you for your Christian faith, how can we have hope? H-O-P-E. Trying to break this, this whole psalm down. We'll walk through it hopefully quickly, get through everything. Verses one through six begins it out saying, holler to God to defend us. Holler, call out to him. Verse one, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. David starts out this public prayer by calling God to engage in battle, to be a warrior for his sake. The first word contend actually is a legal term, and he's gonna get back to that in a little bit. Like he needs God to be his witness, to stand in the courts for him. In verse 11, he'll come back to that. But in verse two, he makes the use of the word fight, calling God to battle, taking hold of shield and buckler. Most of you probably don't know what a buckler is. One of those old English words that get transposed from translation to translation. It's basically a small round shield used in battle. So you'd have a big shield to defend you. That's why some translations call this large shield and small shield. A big shield covered your whole body. A small shield was engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You'd have another weapon in your hand and you can blow and defend. He's saying, come, raise weapons in battle. Engage. God is not just the nice old grandpa in the sky. He gives out gifts and pep talks and says, you know, just keep at it. Remember, Yahweh is a conquering general. In Exodus 15, 3, as he was defeating Egypt, said, Yahweh is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. He's a man of war. And verse 4 specifies who's David, who David is calling him to fight. He's saying, these are enemies who seek his life. They're not just making plans for David's political defeat. No, they, they want him dead. They want to take his place, which they can only do if he is taken out. And, and we'll see in a little bit how much worse that is because of his care and closeness to them. If verse four describes who, verse five and six describes how. How does he want God to engage them in battle? And he says, turn them into chaff before the wind. That's the light parts of the grain that the wind would blow. And after they would take them all out and they'd put things into big piles, the wind would blow and the chaff would just disappear. Then he wants them to slip in the darkness, to not see their path. He wants them to fail, have no grounding. And he wants the angel of the Lord to capture them. 
We said previously a number of times that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. David is calling Christ to curse his enemy and drive them into darkness. Remember, this is the same angel of the Lord who punished David for his sin with the census. When David was very prideful and tried to say, here's how great I am and how many soldiers I have. And the angel came and brought a curse upon the land until it stopped at the Temple Mount. This is the same Jesus who Paul writes of in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. He comes to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. And Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. See, in 34 verse 7, he asked God to deliver him. He said, angel of the Lord, deliver me. Well, what does that look like by, but making those who seek his life disappear? See, we need to call God into battle. Not, not when our battle is just a personal issue, someone doesn't like me, but when the battle is for Christ. And I don't think we, we see this as clearly today, normally. And we gotta be very blessed. Like often the battle isn't about your Christian faith. Very few of us in the United States of America are being directly attacked for our Christian faith. So it does happen. But if we remember church history, that happened a lot. Queen Mary I, known as Bloody Mary, right? In her reign, in her short reign, she had 288 people publicly killed, burned alive for their faith, let alone how many others imprisoned. One was an archbishop, four were bishops, 21 were clergymen, 55 were women, and four were children killed for their faith. Bishop J.C. Ryle, writing on this later, says, the fact that these 22, sorry, 288 sufferers were not put to death for any offense against property or person. They were not rebels against the queen's authority caught red-handed in arms. They were not thieves or murderers or drunkards or unbelievers or men and women of immoral lives. On the contrary, they were, with barely an exception, some of the holiest, purest, and best Christians in England, and several of them the most learned men of their day. Could you imagine being the mother or sister of one of those children burned for being a Protestant, for saying our faith is, is in Scripture alone. We believe salvation is by faith alone, and they're being burned alive. You think you would pray for Mary's defeat? You think you would pray for Mary to no longer be on the throne? And would that be a good thing? And I would contend, yes, Lord, please stop this evil is a good prayer calling God to engage in battle is a good thing. Not everyone likes imprecatory psalms like these. And I get that. They, they kind of rub us the long way. Some say they are merely a reflection of a quote-unquote unworthy spirit that held sway in the Old Testament times, but has now been replaced 
with the loving spirit of the New Testament. C.S. Lewis, the great, great writer, apologist, wrote that some of the Psalms, the spirit of hatred, which strikes us in the face like the heat of a furnace mouth. But we must not either try to explain them away or yield for one moment to think the idea that because it comes in the Bible, all the vindictive hatred must somehow be good and pious. We should be wicked in any way if we condone or approved it. And I get those concerns. You might read through some of these and go, oh, why is David saying that? Not even saying some of the worst things that are in the Psalms. But remember, these are not just David's words. These are not an Israelite king trying to figure out what God would have for him. And he's like, well, God, how am I supposed to respond? The Bible says these are the very word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. No prophet brought them about by his own interpretation, but they were led along by the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's words. And when an Israelite during David's time called out curses, he is doing exactly what God told them to do in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 20. They're calling out for justice to be done. Not revenge, justice. They're calling out for God to stop the wicked. He's not calling out for vengeance, but vindication. So, Christians, when we read the Psalms like these, the imprecatory Psalms, we should pray for God to save the wicked who opposes our Christianity. But if you're fired because you refuse to sin or approve the lies of the world, you can pray, Lord, may this company not succeed. Like, may, may they not be able to show that their persecution gets away with nothing. Jesus told us to pray this way. He said in Luke 18, 7 through 8, God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. He will not delay long over them. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Luke 18, 7 through 8. But if you're driving down the freeway and someone cuts you off in a hurry or slams on their brake when they shouldn't, probably don't call down fire from heaven upon their car. Um, that'll just make the freeway all the worse if God answered that. But it is okay. Think of it this way. Lord, this is, may this guy be caught by the, by the highway patrol. He's doing something dangerous. And remember, you ever do anything dangerous, maybe someone's praying for you to be stopped as well. It is okay to pray for justice, for right things to be done. The, it is the opposite of bitterness to say, Lord, I leave the result in your hands. Please, Lord, take action. You have to, I can't. That is not the bitter attitude that says, I need to seek revenge. And it's helpful because I know being cut off in the car is a silly thing. Even some of us, like, ah, I'll lose my job. I can get another job. But there really are truly wicked things in the world that take place. And secondly, we must then object. Object to them. Object to the evil in the world. We have to recognize that there is evil and say, no, this shouldn't be. 
That's exactly what David does. See, we're jumping around a little bit, but 7 through 16 and 19 through 21, he starts to lay out his complaints. He says all the things that are just problematic with this world. And he lays out specifically five descriptions in this part, five descriptions of the evil that should not exist, five ways that there's this evil in his life. And he's like, this is what's wrong. And this is a great practice to learn from David. If we actually say it and we specify what is wrong rather than just complaining in general, like, ah, I just wish there were fairer taxes. Oh, okay, like, how is it unfair? Let's just talk about that. Like, be specific in our complaints. David is. He says, first, verse 7 through 8, they set a trap for him. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon them when he does not know it, and let the net he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his own destruction. David's saying he's innocent. He did not actually do the things that they're trying to pin against him. He, it is without cause. It is without cause. He has done nothing wrong. These nets are things that hunters would use to catch fish or to catch birds or animals. They'd lay them out as traps and they'd fall into them and into a hole and be gathered up and then they'd have their food. And notice the consequence David wants for them. In verse 8, he says, let them fall into their own trap. Turn the table against them. This is not a prayer for fire to come down from heaven. This is a prayer for the tables to turn, for their plan to fail and spectacularly fail. So it comes against them. He says, secondly, they tried to trick David in court. They tried to trick David in court. Verse 11 Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me things I do not know. Now, witness is someone who gives a testimony. It's the same term used in the Ten Commandments, which we said earlier, Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. These people are trying to say, either testify that he has done something wrong or get him to do so. And this happened to Jesus, too. As Jesus was captured by the leaders of Israel, we read Matthew 26, 59 through 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Even though false witnesses were coming forward, they couldn't agree as the law demanded, and they were failing in their account to accuse him. They didn't know what they were talking about, and they failed. They brought up lies, just like David. And perhaps most painfully, third, they repaid David's love with hatred. L look in your Bibles, and you've got to read along with this part. Verse 12 through 16 they repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went as though I grieved for my friend or for my brother. As one laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning 
But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me, wretches whom I did not know. They tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Bereft. Think of someone lost at sea. It's alone and sad. David had loved them, and they had betrayed him. When they were sick, when there was something wrong in their life, David put on sackcloth. Do you remember sackcloth? It's described throughout the Bible as being a very uncomfortable clothing. It has just worn edges of wool, and it was meant purposely to rub against the body. Normally, we put on clothing, and our body stops firing the proton receptors that allow us to be able to feel things, and so we stop feeling the clothing on us. But certain clothing that just moves and it pokes you in a different way was this constant reminder, something's wrong and I need to pray. That's what sackcloth was. It was a reminder, I need to pray because there is something wrong in the world. And David not only put on sackcloth, he fasted. He deprived himself of the good food that he could have for the purpose of praying for these people. Verse 14 says, He grieved like a friend, like a brother, like if his own mother was sick and dying. Notice he says they're not friends any more than they are his mother, but he treated them the same. You know those family members? Maybe it's a close friend who a sacrifice feels like nothing to you. You will drive thousands of miles. You will give thousands of dollars. You will give your time, your energy for them. And it's like nothing because of course you love them. David treated these people that way. He gave his everything so that they could be healed. So they could do better. But what do they do in response to him. In verse 15, he has some kind of failing at his stumbling. We don't know what kind of stumbling it is. Maybe it's a physical issue. Maybe it's a sin that he falls into, as David does, or a political issue, a swing in political preferences or a defeat in battle. Whatever it is, his enemies saw this as an opportunity, not to return love and prayers for his prayers, but to pile upon him Verse 16, they make jokes about him publicly at the feasts. They mock him. They roast him. They repay his good with evil. So David asks for help. Verse 17 and 18. As they try and destroy David, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lion's I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. The image of lions goes back to David's youth as a shepherd boy in the hills. He knows what it was like to try and survive the attacks of lions. And and this brings up an important issue here, that David is not just some random individual. He is not even just some random king or elected official. He is the God-ordained Messiah of Israel. He is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so their opposition to him is not just because he's David, but because he's the anointed king of Yahweh. Everyone knew the spirit of the Lord was on David and that he represented God. And so their push against him 
is because they're pushing against God and his ways. Additionally, these people aren't just going after David. Look back in verse 10. He says, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. In verse 20, he talks about those who are, um, who are suffering in the land. Here, he's praying a prayer of justice to stop them because they're hurting other people as well. This isn't just him, though primarily him, but it's affecting all those who are part of his kingdom and all those who follow the Lord. The last thing he talks about that they did to him, fifth, 19 through 21, they lied to David. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those wink their eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open their wide, their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. David comes in and he prays, Lord, please do not let them cheer when I have done nothing wrong. He says, they are those who wink their eyes. That's an Old Testament cultural issue, talking about those who are planning something. Like, we might wink if we're having a joke. We're like, yeah. But winking the eye was kind of like a, I'm giving you a signal. We see that in Proverbs 16, verse 12 says, a worthless person winks his eyes. He signals with his feet. He points with his finger. With perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Proverbs 16, or Proverbs 6, 12 through 14. So it's the image of they're trying to send messages and make a plan. They're lying and saying, oh, yes, I'm your friend. Wink, wink. Let's kill him behind his back. And this is very much like what the Pharisees did with Jesus. They pretended to come forward and ask questions, right? They're like, oh, teacher, oh, teacher, please let us know. All the while, they were trying to trap him. He had done nothing wrong, and yet Jesus quotes this passage in John 15 to explain why the Jews hated him. As he prepared his disciples for persecution, he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Whoever hates me hates my father also. John 15, 25, it is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. See, these opposers of David and the opposers of Christ, they try to find a lie. They try to find a failing. They can't. And so ultimately, they just open their mouths wide and say, ah, we've seen something. And it's all lies. It's a godly thing to point out and object to evil in the world. David, as king, was supposed to point out the wrong like all good public officials are supposed to do. Even the secular political world understands this. I don't want to get into it too much, and so if someone wants to correct me, they can, but I found an article talking about how at least a dozen district attorneys in the past couple years won elections by saying they would not persecute, sorry, prosecute low-level crimes. They pledged, and I quote, 
declined the prosecution of shoplifting, larcency of items worth less than $250, disorderly conduct, drug possessions with intent to distribute, and breaking and entering a vacant property. They said, these crimes, yeah, they're crimes, but we're not going to punish them. Well, what happened? You know, for example, in San Francisco, there was such a spike in smash-and-grab robberies. There was rampant shoplifting that even the employees were getting hurt in these. Companies like Walgreens closed a number of locations across San Francisco. Target locations closed at like 5 o'clock in the evening because they did not want to deal with the damage and attack against their people. There's been a number of recalls recently against those very politicians, and a number of people have said this soft on crime policies created a crisis in confidence in our judicial system that voters just can't ignore. It's easy to point the finger at these people and say, you're not doing your job to prosecute wrongdoing. Wrong is wrong. Crimes are crimes. But do we do the same? Do we make excuses? See, we have to not make the same mistake of the Corinthian church. You know, the Corinthian church had a lot of good things going for them, but Paul had to point out a lot of bad things too. And they were so focused on trying to be merciful and accepting, they refused to call a great sin a sin. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 Paul wrote to them, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, just like them, we want to be forgiving. We want to be patient, don't we? But we should also want to be holy and call sin, sin, unrepentant sin, cannot just be allowed to go on in the church. Matthew 18 is very clear about that. When your brother sins against you, go to your brother and try and be reconciled. If he refuses to repent, you go again with someone else. If he refuses to repent then, you take it to the church. And if he refuses even then, the church is to treat him like a tax collector. Sometimes, though, we even go through that process. That's an act of love. What is church discipline? Calling sin, sin. And you've loved your enemy. You've prayed for them. You've tried to meet their needs, and still they hate you. Again, the idea of a neighbor who rejects you because of Christianity. And they gossip to the whole neighborhood about all the things that you're supposedly not doing right. And they actually find maybe one wrong thing that you did with your garbage can that one time, and everyone knows it, right? We are to pray, oh Lord, this is wrong. Please handle the situation. It's okay to say, Lord, please let others see through this lie. I can't do anything. I've said my piece, but Lord, make it clear to all of them. As Romans 12 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now, we can pray this, and we can say, let God bring justice, because David believes God will bring justice. Third, the P, presume God will enact justice. Presume upon God he will do this. This is verse 17 and 18, 22 through 26. Um, As David often does in the Psalms, it's not just a straight line. He mentions something and comes back again. So we already kind of mentioned it, but let's look at 17 and 18 again. He says, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Verse 22, then. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Let them not be rejoiced over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Notice, if you can, in your Bible, the connection between verse 21 and 22. They say, our eyes have seen it. David responds, You have seen it, O Yahweh. They may have actually seen something real, David's slip up. They may be making up. But God is omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. God sees it. Though everyone else may fall or may be convinced and tricked, God knows the truth. In verse 10, he asked for God to deliver the poor. And he says, I know you will rescue me. I will praise you. In verse 17, he asks and believes God will rescue him. In verse 24, he says, vindicate me, O Lord, according to your righteousness. God is righteous. He will bring vindication. Not vindictiveness, but Vindication, making things clear, proving who is righteous and who is a liar. Who is a hypocrite who says, oh, I never sin, and who, like David, was humble and confessed his sin? In verse 24, he believes God will bring that. The reality of the wrong made clear. See, God enacts justice. And it is a sure and good thing to pray for that. It's not just good for us who are being defended. It's actually good for the wrongdoer as well. You all know the great atrocities that took place in World War II. And there was an SS officer who led a squad into France and wiped out a whole village of 600 people in retaliation for their opposition to the German army. He went on, and he was a minor commander, so he lived in obscurity for many years until 1980, when he was condemned and tried to life imprisonment for his crimes. A reporter interviewed him in prison and said, did you ever, in all those years, ever weep over the children, the men, the women, 
that you killed that day? His answer was, no, not at all. And she said, did it ever occur to you that you had done a terrible injustice to those people? He said, no, not as long as I was free. Everything was quite normal. But, I quote, now I often think that there must have been something wrong and that I was involved in it myself and that probably the whole thing was horribly wrong. See, the justice, the consequence for his sin was bringing the man to actually see the wrong he had done, to live up to the guilt of his actions for the first time in his life. We must believe that God's judgment is good, and so we must believe it is good for it to take place in people's lives. God's vindication, his justice is good to both parties of a wrong. And some of you need to believe that. You need to believe that those who have sinned against you, those who have done wrong against you, that you need to go to them and you need to say, God says this is wrong and you did this to me. And it hurt. And I'm praying for your repentance. You need to tell them that they have sinned. Others of you perhaps need God's kind, firm arm to wake you up to the consequences of your sins. So it's easy in life. We live in such comfort, like the SS officer, to just be like, I never even thought of the wrong thing I did. You may feel like you're just fine, trusting in your own way that life is going pretty good. But God, in his patience, kindly removes the security at times. And the guilt hits us. Christians, that even happens again at times, right? Where, where we, the guilt of past actions hit us hard, and we're like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I was that kind of person. And if God is so kind to show you that conviction, to remind you you've done wrong, do not hide from that guilt. See it as a kindness to show you your need for forgiveness that can only come through Jesus Christ paying for that wrong. All we have to do is say, I have done wrong, O Lord, please forgive me, and turn from that. It is a good thing for God to enact justice. And lastly, this justice can have a good end because it brings about good friends. The E in hope. Entrust yourself the Lord's people. Verse 27 and 28. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and your praise all day long. David ends the psalm in the prayer by turning to those around him who are praying with him and says, whatever the evil may do, we will rejoice in what Yahweh is doing. They shout God's greatness together because when God saves the king, all people rejoice. 
The good people were there to support David, even as these enemies were out against him. And those who were clothed in shame in verse 26 have the possibility of joining those who rejoice. Jeremiah talks about this. We got to remember, even as we're praying this, it is never an end deal. Even if you ask God to do justice, we also can say like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18, verse 7, Yahweh says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck them up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning from which I have spoke turns from its evil, I will relent from the disaster that I intended to do it. In the midst of hurt, we need to entrust ourselves to God's people. People have faced this kind of betrayal and hurt before. Again, another good English man, William Tyndale, who we owe much of our translation of the Bible to. He was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest in England in 1521, and he was convicted as a criminal for trying to translate the Bible from Greek and Latin into English. The Roman Catholic Church and the King of England did not appreciate what he was doing. And sadly, he was betrayed by a friend and arrested. And in 1536, he was condemned to death as a heretic to be strangled and burned. And his last words were, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. He prayed his enemy would become his brother. And many more Christians, though this man was burned as a stake, today he is lifted up as a hero. When you suffer for Christ's sake, whether it is in church, as it sometimes does happen, in community, or in your workplace, or your family, remember, for every critiquer, for every attacker, for every accuser out there, you have brothers and sisters by your side. You have those who will pray with you, who will encourage you and remind you of Christ. Even as Christians, we know we were once enemies of God. And he has made us his family. He has made us into this group that praises his name. And so may it encourage you to pray for the sinner attacking you. Uh, we've seen in the midst of a failure, it seems like, of love, have hope. Call out to God to defend. Object to the evil that's in the world. Presume God will enact justice and then entrust yourself to the Lord's people. We need God to be just. And I recently read about the International Court of Justice. Again, I read it in news articles. So if you guys who are more political know more about this and you want to correct me, you can. But I didn't find it interesting the International Court of Justice is an arm of the UN, the United Nations, and their job is to deal with international court cases. It has um, a, a, a palace of peace, I'm sorry, it's actually called the Palace of Peace in Hog, Holland, where 15 judges from different countries gathered together. I read how the Ukrainian government made a request to the court saying, we request an urgent decision ordering Russia to cease military activity now, and we expect trials to start the next week. This was a few months ago. 
The international court is, on paper, the most powerful court in all the planet. Not only can they hold members of the United Nations accountable, they are given the charter and authority to arbitrate disputes between non-member nations when requested, and their decision is supposed to be final and deciding. But in reality, the court has very little power. In the first 30 years of its existence, the world's court handled 61 cases, and of those 61 cases, they only rendered 26 judgments and 15 advisory opinions. Brothers and sisters, in a world of injustice, in a world where evil is done, and you can talk about the world court, you can talk about the Orange County courts, and where law does not always mean justice is done. Some wicked things are not even against the law. We need a good judge that we can call out to, don't we? And we need one who is all-powerful, who will speedily address wrongs in the right time. And if you are a Christian, if you follow the God of the universe, then you have a God you can make your appeal to. So pray to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we trust your justice. We trust that you will be praised. So Lord, please, when there is evil, when there is wrong, when we are accused and attacked, may our trust in you prove right. May you vindicate us. Lord, may you turn our enemies into friends so we may all gather together in delight in the Lord. Lord, we wish to tell of your righteous acts and your answers to our prayers. So Lord, as many are concerned about the future, about the legality of nature, that Lord, please work. We trust your end result to the praise of your name, Jesus. Amen.